This episode of the Third Sector podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. And if you have 10 minutes of browsing time spare, you should check out their social impact center, salesforce.org, which focuses on partnering with the global community of changemakers. Salesforce.org's unique business unit is dedicated to creating solutions for nonprofit, educational, and philanthropic organizations so they can have a greater impact. And they provide access to powerful technology that empowers changemakers to build a better world. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Andy Ricketts, News Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month, we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations we've had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. This month, we'll be hearing about the voluntary sector's response to the Black Lives Matter movement and charities' efforts to tackle institutional racism and the lack of diversity within their own organisation. Third Sector's editor, Emily Burt, will be talking to Kunle Olilode, Chief Executive of Voice for Change England, and Sabah Shafi, an organiser for Charity So White, about the steps charities have already taken and what more needs to be done. We'll also be speaking to the newest member of the Third Sector team, senior reporter Stephen Delahunty, about how charities should be talking publicly about their anti-racism policies. And as ever, we'll be bringing you our coronavirus care package. Good things in the sector that have cheered us up this month. But first, we've got so many third sector editorial staff in this episode, it's more overstuffed than a post-lockdown donations bin outside your local charity shop. Uh, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. How's your lockdown been? Oh, well, you know, probably pretty so-so. I can't believe six months has actually passed since we've been working from home. But I am... Very pleased that some things are starting again, not not least a bit of live rugby, which I'm uh, particularly pleased about. How about you? Yeah, uh, pretty much the same. Not so much with the sport, I have to say. That's not really my... Uh... <laughs> not so much your bag. No, I'm glad, I'm glad you're happy, though. Like, uh... <laughs> And I'm certainly looking forward to getting back to the cinema when that finally reopens with uh, Christopher Nolan's new big film coming out Tenet that's uh, that's exciting I'm kind of nervously anticipating the possibility of going to see a live film although um, my favourite local cinema hasn't actually reopened yet which is a bit sad so uh, yeah. let's hope that happens soon. Yeah no I've definitely been missing live events actually I have to say um, I do a lot of uh, sort of going to see live poetry, theatre, uh, music not so much festivals, but I always like the idea that I might go to festivals. It's been it's been a couple of years since I've been, but um, yeah, I like I like the idea of of going to one. The possibility of being there at least is a good thing. <laughs> it's always good. Now you had a bit of a story, didn't you, about a festival that went a little in an unexpected direction? Yes. Uh, so the the lovely people at the MS Trust were just hoping to bring a bit of kind of festival themed joy to everyone's summer. Um, with an online fundraising event called Coachella, which obviously is a play on the American Arts and Music Festival Coachella. And uh, yeah, but unfortunately that didn't, that didn't happen. What went wrong? Well, so the event happened, but it had to happen under a different name um, because the company behind the American uh, Festival threatened them with legal action uh, because they say they've tra- trademarked the suffix cella. Right. Which like... I get it. Like, fair enough. That's that's you know that is your copyright, and you know you trademarked <laughs> it. But I mean, it's a two million pound a year charity, and no, but nobody was confused by that. Nobody actually thought that it was Coachella. Uh, <laughs> it was a, you know, an MS charity 
hoping to bring people a bit of comedy, some music, some poetry in their living rooms, a couple of dance classes, I think, um, and a festival that grossed um, more than $114 million um, <laughs> in 2017. Thought, mm, nah. You know, it seems a bit harsh on a two million pound a year charity. Yeah, I think I think stingy misers, basically, uh, is, <laughs> is, is my thinking. Um, what did the charity do in the end? So they did eventually run it. They called it the MS Trust Home Festival. And um, uh, uh, I can't find any figures for uh, how much they raised yet, but because um, it only took place uh, last week. But um, hopefully it was successful and kind of best of luck to them with it because uh, you know, they were just trying to yeah. trying to bring a bit of joy and raise some money, uh, which we know charities need at the moment. Yeah. I'm wondering if I might be able to somehow trademark the suffix gate, because obviously <laughs> in, in any time anything goes wrong or there's any hint of a scandal these days, it, people deploy the word gate, don't they, on the end? So, that is true. That's true. Maybe this yeah. could be, maybe this should be Chellagate. I don't know. Perhaps. Perhaps. And then, and then you probably have to donate them any money you got, though, I think, at this point. That's true. To the MS Trust for this particular scandal. I think they deserve it. Uh, great. So uh, shall we uh, make a podcast? Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, so on with Emily's interview, uh, looking at Black Lives Matter and the charity sector. When George Floyd was killed by American police in May this year, there was an international response to his death, which the political activist Angela Davis described as a global challenge to racism and the consequences of slavery and colonialism. A number of charities took to social media to share statements of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and make commitments to fighting racism. But simultaneously, conversations were being had about the institutional racism that exists within the voluntary and not-for-profit sector, ranging from the lack of diversity at decision-making levels to the micro and the macro aggressions that people of colour working in charities are subjected to. A lot of organisations have now come out to say, we must do better and we will do better. I'm joined today by Kunli Ololodi, Chief Executive of Voice for Change England, and Saba Shafi, an organiser at Charity So White, to talk about the commitments that are being made and how these might play out. So welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Morning. Morning. Thank you, Emily. By the time this recording comes out, it will have been three months since the death of George Floyd. Now, while this is still incredibly early days, I'm interested in whether you feel there has been a shift in attitude when it comes to being prepared to act on diversity and more explicitly on anti-racism in the charity sector. Kunle, I would love to hear your thoughts. I think that um, clearly George Floyd's killing was a catalyst uh, for many things around the world uh, and many institutions to respond uh, and not least within the charity and third sector. But I think, if I'm honest, um, the sector was ready for a discussion around this for some time, uh, even before um, George Floyd uh, occurred, even before our own report came out, um, Home Truths. Um, I think there was a general recognition that in the way things were changing um, in other areas of um, British social life, um, that the charity sector on issues of diversity, 
um, really was beginning to appear um, to be quite um, old fashioned uh, and in many respects had fallen behind even the private sector. Um, and so I think there were alarm bells. People started looking at things like um, our makeup of foundations. Uh, we started looking at um, why that in an industry where, for example, women uh, predominated at the senior levels, um, uh, most of them were occupied uh, by primarily men. Uh, and in terms of um, questions of race and ethnicity, um, similar patterns of disparities uh, were pretty much self-evident. Um, it wasn't that we didn't have the data, it wasn't that um, uh, people within the sector disagreed. In fact, I think there was an overwhelming recognition that there was a need for change. Um, but I think that um, in terms of then acting on that knowledge and information, um, the sector was dragging its heels. Um, Saba, a number of people that I spoke to, including yourself, felt that there was a certain knee-jerk reaction coming from some organisations um, that was driven almost by a PR concern about how the organisation was perceived, rather than meaningfully engaging with these issues over the last few months. So I would love to know what you feel has kind of been taking place since May this year and what the most important things organisations should be doing now beyond, say, posting a black square or a Black Lives Matter hashtag on their social media channels. For sure. I want to sort of, I want to echo perhaps like a lot of Kunle's, um points from before. I think I, I end up re, I think my, I, I end up settling in a much more cynical place um unfortunately what i feel that we've seen in the last few months is that the charity sector having had 10 to 15 years of preparation and knowledge and reports about the lack of diversity and in the sector has now woken up to the fact that they need to publicly respond to some of these public incidents and they have now a prepared and practiced reporting um, has any of that translated into material action beyond conversation is yet to be seen. And I think that for, any, for all of us who work in the charity sector, we see this time and time again. We spend a lot of our time in the intellectual world of understanding and collecting data and discussing what all the different things that we do and how you know, the impact that they could have in, in like many years' time. And while that is important, it often steers us away from action, um, if not always. And certainly this conversation is not new to the charity sector. And the question that I ask myself is, is this the moment? Um, certainly we received, Charity Sir White received reports um, all the way through um, the international response to George Floyd's um, murder. And the responses that we were being told was that many charity sector leaders were talking about this in a frame of, you know, as soon as this is over, we can get back to the core issues that matter. That was the framing, that racism wasn't an issue, that it was a distraction. And that frame of mind that treating this as a PR exercise, treating the incident and the discussions around it as something that impacts their public reputation, but not their practice, is part of the problem. And unless that is interrogated and resolved, the charity sector is going to continue to talk themselves in circles around this. 
rather than posting black squares on the internet, um, Charity So White would have preferred to see a tangible list of commitments. That mm-hmm. would have been, I think, a much more interesting, a much more bold and uh, a, you know, a response that would have taken true accountability. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the you know, we are supposed to be the caring uh, profession, uh, uh, very touchy-feely and all the rest of it. Um, and yet when it comes to questions of race, um, it does appear that it's the um, presentation of what it looks like rather than the substance that actually um, is not being addressed. And I think that um, if there's one thing that perhaps is um, positive that's come out of uh, this tragic death in America is that for the first time um, people are looking um, at the UK with perhaps more uh, kind of eyes of scrutiny and are really beginning to ask probing questions about how we can um, turn this uh, from something negative into something more positive. Um, and, and I do feel that the, um, the cynicism uh, will always be there in terms of people using it as a PR exercise. But even if we can shift um, 20% of the organizations within the, uh, the sector onto more solid ground in terms of doing practical work in relation to this, then I think we'll have, have achieved something um, uh, quite substantial. It makes me remember sort of back to like a year ago when charities so right first started. One of the things that we asked the sector to do, it was a very small ask. We said, can you can you publicly acknowledge that the sector is structurally racist? And it was a curious, I think a lot of people found that ask to be very curious because it wasn't about hitting specific recruitment targets. It wasn't about changing the way they use their communications. And I think the reason that we the reason that we went down that route was was very simple. It was to say that unless you understand that this isn't a, that there is a structural issue that um, racism is real in the UK, it has a history here, it has um, in many ways a birthplace within within uh, within the UK. That your actions, your planning, and your strategy is always going to come up short because it never it will never take responsibility for something that it is part of in a, in a bigger sense and that was a very hard thing for charities to do and, and we very open with understanding why um, but I think the the reasons why many charities have found that unpalatable I think speaks to some of the issues in our charity sector we've had some very frank conversations with a number of organizations and they say to us the same thing which is that if we do this publicly it will alienate some of the people who fund us it will um just it will it is a very it goes against the idea of the sector and certainly the organization that you know, we might be speaking to as a touchy-feely organization and the thing the thing that I keep coming back to is what is the purpose of the charity sector is it about upholding that image or is it about making like tangible lasting change to those people who we are trying to support and trying to help because if it's about the former then there's not going to be movement forward on this. But if it's about the second, then you have to make the hard choices today. Even if that means that it feels like taking a step back or taking a hit today, the only way for charities to move forward and to get to a material shift is to be brave 
and to make that courageous step and say, actually, we care about lasting change. And that means we're going to admit to something bigger and we're going to turn our heads to look at it square in the face and make the appropriate change going forward. And yeah, I think for me, it's, it has to come from that place of bravery, that all or nothing, that yes, we're going to take, we're going to really grasp this and move forward. And if not, um, I think the movement forward will always will end up curbing background to either stagnation, as we've seen in the past with these conversations, or to, or to something, and I, or to, or frankly, back to the beginning where we started from. Something that really interests me about what you just said there um, chimes with the um, Akiva and, and Voice for Change Home Truths report. Uh, one of the many very good practical recommendations that the report makes is that you know the sector works to redefine racism as ordinary systemic and institutional so it's very interesting to me that you know again we are seeing very very similar calls happening a year apart it was no i I think that's a useful observation we're all asking for the same thing it's not um it's not unusual anymore right it's not left field anymore this is the same cry from across lots of different voices in the sector the home truth support was a it's a fantastic report um as and it's like it's one of um i think ubelli's report that came out during covid as well um the fact that 90 percent of bame led organizations in the sector were likely going to go under because of lack of support during covid i think is a damning statistic for the sector um so yeah i i think lots of similar cries from very different parts of of the space well i was just going to add to that that um we have to be precise in terms of understanding what the problems of the sector are we cannot just uh, simply use blanket terms um like systemic and institutionalized racism um everybody at the moment is using these terms uh, in a very very loose way (laughs) Um, I think, and we need to be able to pinpoint where within our sector um, the rigidity is within the institutions and where the discrimination is systemic. We also have to, I suppose, look at um, the historical legacy of um, a part of our society which is built on um, very paternalistic um, traditions, and those go back. Um, over several hundred years. So it's not just uh, in recent times. And I think the legacy of that paternalism um, still exists. Uh, and at different points in time, um, it may have been seen as um, you know, positive, aggressive, but certainly today, um, it's not where we're at. Uh, and we need to be able to understand um, the historic um, uh, development uh, of our sector as well in terms of the attitudes contained within it. One final question then for both of you. A year from now, what would each of you most like to have seen changed? I would like to see see organisations in our sector, and I mean that very broadly, um, not just charities, but also funders, um, also supporting organizations, um, lots of all the institutions, the organizations within our sector make a tangible move um, 
to put anti-racist objectives within their bigger priorities for the year. Not to, I think it can, I'm not being picky here. This isn't about just, um, this isn't about like they can, it doesn't have to be, I'm, I'm not saying that this is about um, race versus any other line of difference, but rather to, rather than framing this as diversity and inclusion, to talk about what it means to interrogate and reflect on the way the organization is um, upholding um, uh, previous practices and what it means to invest in changing that so that that means for me is money resources and also honest public communication so that they can be held accountable and um, to the practices for me that would be a material tangible action yeah i think for me it's more complex uh, in the sense of we're at the stage where we're looking at uh, targets and quite hard measures in relation to questions of diversity and inclusion. Um, but where we ultimately want to be is in a space where there's been cultural shift uh, in attitudes so that the targets and the kind of hard measures that we're using um, become secondary um, and that we're more confident as a sector that we're on the right course. Um, uh, and I think that that's probably gonna take more than a year, uh, unfortunately. But I'd like to think that there are some organizations that uh, in a year from now, um, the seeds of, um, uh, of change, uh, of qualitative change, not just numerical, uh, have taken root uh, and that they feel confident um, going forward. Um, there aren't many organizations that have that kind of confidence around at the moment. Um, but uh, hopefully a year from now, we will have people who can uh, stand up to scrutiny, uh, but also not be afraid of um, talking about their failings and weaknesses publicly without feeling that they are you know, being publicly shamed or having fingers pointed at them, but are really um, grasping the nettle of what um, organizational change really means in terms of um, uh, both uh, promoting diversity and, and having uh, a, a, a more ingrained anti-racist culture within them. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. As we've just heard, in the wake of the renewed Black Lives Matter protests, many charities have issued statements pledging to do better in recognising and proactively combating racism in their own organisations and ways of operating. These statements have generally been well received, but how can charities make sure their efforts are seen to be genuine, rather than jumping on a PR bandwagon or simply saying the thing they think people want to hear? As we mentioned in the last episode of the podcast, we've got a new member on the Third Sector team. Stephen Delahunty has worked on regional and national titles and most recently on PR Week magazine. So I'm taking the opportunity to pick his brains about how charities can ensure they tread the right PR path on this very sensitive issue. Uh, Stephen, hello. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Hi, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. So 
Um, we're increasingly seeing charities talking about how they plan to tackle racism, both within their own organisations and within society at large. So how can charities ensure they are being seen to do the right thing where it comes to race and anti-racism? Um, well, I think I, I was actually quite surprised to learn the, you know, diversity in the sector um, is actually worse compared to, to um, the private sector. So I think before charities... Um, you know, if they are going to talk about topics like race and anti-racism, they should really be putting, you know, plans in place not only to improve diversity internally, um, but then looking at other practical things they can do. Like, you know, I sat in on the Fundraising Everywhere's BAME Fundraising Conference recently, and again, I was quite surprised to learn that there's still a lot of talk about how um, fundraising materials reinforce ideas of white saviorism and you know, aren't written in solidarity with or collaboration with communities um, that they're trying to work on on behalf of. So um, I think, you know, those two issues there are some real practical steps that charities can take um, to be able to, you know, so they look like they are doing the right thing. Otherwise, you know, the statement is meaningless if they're not putting their own, you know, if they're not analysing their own practices and and their own internal policies. Um, And I think... Mm -hmm you know, a third thing that they could do, and I think it was, um, we had the Bernardo's boss, Javed Khan, writing something um, on the website this week about how, you know, bigger charities should be looking to uplift the voices of smaller Bainwood organisations. Um, and I think that's really important because the, the, you know, actual actionable things that charities can do now, um, so as they're not seen to just be um, paying lip service every time sort of these topics and these issues come to the fore. Hmm. So there's a gap kind of between how charities are perceived and kind of what the reality is, you think, and perhaps how they would like to be perceived and the reality. So they need to be walking the walk as well as talking the talk. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So, I mean, is there a danger that such statements and kind of, you know, setting out these grand objectives of how they're going to do it can look like a soulless PR exercise, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, there's examples of it and you see it all the time across a range of topics. But I think, um, you know, one of the one of the main ones that I was just you know, looking at recently was when um the campaign Nike ran with the American footballer Colin Kaepernick. Um who, you know, had been taking the knee during the US national anthem at American football games to protest against police brutality and this had been going on for years where, you know, he wasn't getting any support from the National Football League either. And, you know, Nike was rightly praised, I think, for um you know, running the campaign that it did and appearing to back, um, you know, his his protest. But then at the same time, um, it was very easy for, you know, Nike was also getting called out because it's senior leadership and, um, you know, only 10% of its senior leadership came from a, a non-white background. So it's very easy with the internet and social media these days for people to be able to look things up and, you know, call out some sort of hypocrisy somewhere and how your organisation's, um, you know, how it's run or in terms of the work that it does. So I think you've got to be very careful when you're putting these statements out that your own house is in order, basically. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to make it made to look a bit silly on, on the internet. Yeah, and no, that makes a lot of sense. So apart from kind of Colin Kaepernick and uh, Nike, are there any other examples you can think of where it's kind of fallen a bit flat? Yeah, there was obviously the, um, you know, the Pepsi advert with Kendall Jenner. Um, 
<laughs> that you know obviously caught, was caught in the Black Lives Matter protests in the US, um, and you had a whole you know range of civil rights leaders that were called you know calling that out. Um, so yeah, so this was a, a campaign where it very much looked like Kendall Jenner was uh, solving um, standoffs between police and protesters by handing everybody a Pepsi and smiling at them. I think was the yeah, basically, and then you know, and then you had, I mean, the you know, Twitter was just full then of people <laughs> reproducing other. There, there was one image that I found that was like a bottle of Pepsi in front of the tanks, you know, in that famous image from Tiananmen Square in the protest in nineteen eighty nine. So. It just spawned this huge, you know, parley on 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 social media with people reproducing other images. Um, and I don't know. The thing is, though, I feel like you know when you're as big as Pepsi, I feel like even they must have had this discussion. Do you know what I mean? And thought even mm. if it goes badly, people are still going to be talking about Pepsi at the moment. So I don't know how much sometimes these things are done on purpose because you know. Bad publicity is still good publicity, isn't it, at the moment? So I'd be interested to see whether, you know, Pepsi sales went up or down after that. Yeah. Because that, that'd be interesting. But, um, yeah, I don't think uh, there's, there's any excuse, do you know what I mean, these days to, with these sorts of campaigns. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, um, obviously there's been a lot of pressure, I think, in the last few months for big organisations to be speaking out publicly and to make a statement and to be kind of, you know, drawing a line in the sand and saying where they stand on racism and on the Black Lives Matter campaigns. Um, So what are your kind of top tips for putting together an anti-racism statement for organisations? I mean, a very obvious one would just be, you know, um, I think the... You know, if your organisation isn't as diverse as you would like it to be, for whatever the reasons that they are, then I think the simplest thing you can do, and it's probably the only tip really, is just write it in collaboration, you know, with a BAME-led organisation or with a group that is involved in, um, you know, a movement or a protest or whatever it is. You know, get them involved and ask, you know, would they support, would they endorse the statements or at least um, get their input. Um, and I think that would be you know, be, would be much more well-received um, than just drafting something yourself and sort of, you know, posting it on Twitter. Um, I think there needs to be much more collaboration with the organisations actually on the ground rather than just putting out. You know, you see a lot of these statements are often very similar and they come across as being like, you know, a bit friendly, but at the end of the day, you know, charities and especially brands and stuff are not really friendly. Ultimately, you want to sell your things or have another purpose. So I think... Um, to be sincere, yeah, they should be done in in collaboration, basically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We were we were talking as well about like what you know the idea of apologising when people do get it wrong, um, mm. which I think we sort of touched on. But I think again, it's like when you've got you you know organisations that do have big comms teams, or you know in some cases will employ a com you know a PR agency to write things on their behalf. Just not, I don't think there's any, you know, ha- I've had to wait weeks before for a brand to sign off on a press release announcing, you know, a new partnership with a comms agency. So it's like, where's the due diligence being done mm. when you're going to comment on a sensitive topic? Do you know what I mean? If it takes four weeks to sign off that press release, where is the same effort being put into what, you know, could be a problematic statement or could upset people? Um, it seems like a lot of these things are just rushed out um, to jump on a bandwagon when... Obviously, there should be a lot more thought put into it. Yeah. 
So something that involving the whole organisation then as well and kind of really thinking about what's what's going on behind it and being prepared to kind of accept criticism and acknowledge where they're still learning as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, I mean, I can't really think of many examples where an organisation has, you know, put out a, a statement that wasn't received very well and then they've doubled down on it. <laughs> You'd have to be pretty, pretty audacious, I think, to, to, to do that. But um, there may be some out there, but yeah, I don't think that's a particularly good look, is it? Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us and we'll look forward to having you on the podcast again. It feels like it's been a long month, seemingly full of depressing news. For example, a report that 60,000 jobs are expected to go in the charity sector this year. So once again, we've come up with a list of a few or interesting, cheerful stories that have caught our attention in the past month. What have you got for us this time around, Rebecca? Uh, so first up was uh, a fun little one that gave me some joy on Twitter. Uh, the National Trust decided to tweet um, the history of some of the objects in its collection uh, that is connected to slavery and colonialism. So there's things like um, a little pot used to make chocolate and obviously the cocoa and the sugar would have been, uh, it was an 18th century pot, so that would have been um, farmed by slaves. Uh, same with like sort of sugar shakers, sugar shakers, that's not um, the same with uh, little sugar shakers. Uh, there was some ivory. There was some mahogany that would have been felled by slave labor. Um, and they were just talking about it and sort of saying, you know, we're recognizing this and we're looking at how we're educating people. And um, a few people on Twitter got very offended by this and said that they didn't like their enjoyment of historical artifacts being uh, spoiled by knowing the history of them. Um, and uh, yeah, the response to the National Trust, I, I really like this one because I think it was sort of taking a leaf very much out of the RNLI's book um, from yeah. uh, back last year. The RNLI took some flack from the Daily Mail for uh, because 2% of its um, spending goes to uh, teaching children to swim abroad. Yeah. And when the Daily Mail had a go at them, they just said, actually, we're not sorry. Yeah. Um, we're not sorry we save children. We don't care that you have a problem with that. And lots of people threatened to uh, cancel their direct debits, which the same thing happened again um, with the National Trust. And again, the National Trust kind of said, well, this is the history of it. Uh, and I just thought they responded really positively to it and they were really brave about it. Um, yeah. And I just I was a fan of of kind of facing up to history and also not being cowed by people being a bit squeamish about these things or kind of using direct debit threats as a way of getting charities to say what they want um, particularly as it's not clear that these people necessarily were members uh, in the first place um, yeah but it's fair to say there was also praise for the charity in terms of how they responded yeah absolutely and I think there was there was a lot of um, sort of a very positive vibe towards them and I think you know much like the RNLI case it was a really good example of you know what sticking to your guns can do to you for uh, can do for you for in terms of your supporters and, and what they how they feel about you. So yeah, um, I was a big fan of that. Uh, so what have you got for me, Andy? Okay, well I've got something. If you've been stuck on your couch for the last five months, um, feeling maybe a little bit lardy, maybe a little bit bigger than usual, have a listen to this one. Kyle Gregg is aiming to raise funds for Chaz and the Gathimba Edwards Foundation by breaking the world record for the furthest distance run on a treadmill in 24 hours. Wow. Got any idea, Rebecca, of what the record currently stands at? Ooh, 
I don't know. Um, 24 hours, running on a treadmill. Running on a treadmill. Okay. Let's say 80. 80. Try doubling it. The, the official record set by Norwegian Bjorn Tora Kronen Taranga. Apologies for anybody. Norwegian who might be listening I've probably just completely mangled his name but he set the record in 2018 and it's 164.36 miles equivalent of six marathons I don't know why you thought that would make me feel better about myself sitting on the sofa Andy I'm not I'm not clear what the thinking was there but that is impressive that is very impressive I'll get to the bit that the the way it would make you feel better about yourself because I think that um, what this really shows is that you know despite everything that's going on and despite the hard circumstances that so many people are finding themselves in this is still a great example of someone who's prepared to well quite literally go the extra mile for charity so um, a massive good luck to uh, Kyle and he will be attempting to run more than 164.36 miles on the 28th of August. Yeah, I mean, hats off to him and, and good luck. Yeah, absolutely. What else have you got for us, Rebecca? Okay, this one, I'm stretching the definition of cheerful a bit, but I think it's a great campaign, so I do want to talk about it. Uh, this one is uh, Marie Curie, uh, the End of Life charity, are campaigning for a National Day of Reflection um, to uh, help the nation grieve and remember all the people we've lost since lockdown began. Um, so more than a million people have been bereaved since the UK lockdown began, uh, whether that's a result of coronavirus or another cause. And we've just not been able to grieve in the same way that we normally would. Uh, they're proposing that uh, the 23rd of March next year should be uh, a national day of reflection. Um, and this campaign is I admit, it's a little bit personal to me because um, it's being fronted by a friend of mine, Tyrone Lewis, um, in memory of another friend of ours, Dean McKee, who passed away very early during the coronavirus crisis. Um, mm. He was 28 and he worked in a care home and uh, he died of coronavirus. And he was mm. a, a really lovely, kind, incredible, creative human being. And um, I, yeah, I think we, we've not really known how to to grieve properly in this time mm. where you know we can't see any of our mutual friends mm. um so yeah tyrone is is fronting this campaign um with Mary curie and it's just a, it's a fantastic campaign and i do think it's just really important that we do at some point reflect on our collective sense of loss and sort of, uh, remember and celebrate the lives of the people who've gone uh, as we begin to heal from this trauma um and yeah i just think you know uh, it's, it's an excellent example of a charity saying you know what needs to happen and then going ahead and campaigning for it in a really innovative and interesting way yeah so when are they tra- hoping to run that day so that's the 23rd of march 2021 they're campaigning to be a national day of grieving and remembrance and, and reflection um and you can sign the petition at www.mariecurie.org.uk forward slash national day so that's a campaign that's going on at the moment um and yeah i just think it's a great one um uh, Andy, uh, have you got a, a, another one for us? Yeah, this one is a little bit different to that. This is about chickens. So there's a uh, community interest company called Fresh Start for Hens that uh, rehomes chickens that have kind of come to the end of their sort of peak laying um, period in their lives. Apparently, when they get to something like 72 weeks, I didn't know this. Did you know this? When they get to no. something like 72, 72 weeks, they they kind of they're past their best in terms of egg laying capabilities so often they just get sent off um to be slaughtered but fresh start for hens they take the hens and then they offer them up for adoption to anybody who wants a chicken 
and wants uh, a pet in their garden. And the the charity says that they've had more than 52,000 requests for chickens since lockdown began in in March. Um, I don't know if you remember, but apart from everybody having a real problem getting hold of toilet rolls, eggs was also another thing that you could not get for love nor money on supermarket shelves. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why they've had such a... Um, such an influx of people wanting to uh, adopt chickens but the uh, the charity that's run just by um, volunteer, volunteers I think uh, you know usually just has a few hundred available they said they were getting 4,000 inquiries a week at the peak of uh, of lockdown and you know I really want to avoid anything to do with um, a yoke um, um, a joke that might <laughs> relating to chickens but the service apparently is called cluck and collect nice nice there we go yeah well that's uh that should ruffle some feathers Um, i'm really sorry i'm really clucking sorry Um, (laughs) yes that was not a very excellent joke all right let's move on before this descends before this descends into uh punnery of the worst form what what have you got I love a pun and I'm not sufficiently ashamed of puns, I have to say. Um, Yes, here is a piece of good job-related news. The Shaw Trust has said it's going to create 600 jobs. They're a charity that deals largely with uh, people looking uh, who are unemployed. Um, Mm. So the reason that they are increasing the number of jobs is because other people have lost theirs and there is a need for um, more staff to support them. But in terms of charity sector jobs, you know, fact that a charity has the the bandwidth to expand to meet increased demand in this day and age is is a really uh really positive thing um so yes well done to the short trust excellent shall i round off with the st barnabas hospice yes let's readers might remember that st barnabas hospice a few weeks ago opened a drive-through donation service while its charity shops were shut they operate um, 26 stores in Lincolnshire and you can probably remember that people during lockdown a lot of people maybe were having kind of Marie Kondo inspired clear outs but they had nowhere that they could send the items so um, St Barnabas Hospice thought well our shops might be might not be open but we do have access to a warehouse so why don't we start doing a drive-through service where people can come and give us stuff they they ran that service for a couple of weeks in early July but now they've had to they've had to say that since they've started reopening their stores they've had to put a temporary halt on donations because they've had more than 50 tons of stock donated to them wow. in basically a month which is a quite staggering amount of goods yes I mean I'm guessing they're probably benefiting from the fact that there are quite a few charity shops that are still closed most of the ones in my local high street haven't yet reopened so I guess Mm. people are seeing if they're open but I mean it's interesting because when I spoke to the charity and we did a story on this um, the other day um, the uh, the person uh, the spokeswoman for the charity said that they'd been inundated but in but in the best way yes Um, I mean I feel like that's that's going to be a lot of clothes or like a hundred books Yes, they don't say how many copies of Fifty Shades of Grey they've received, (laughs) (laughs) which, if I recall, has in uh, in previous years been enough to fill a a small store on on its own. Yes, I I believe charities have said, please don't give us your old copies of Fifty Shades of Grey. We have too many. I think that has been a thing in the past. 
Indeed, but good luck to them while they sort through all of their 50 tonnes of donations. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you to our guests, Kunle Olulode, Saba Shafi and Stephen Delahunte, to our sponsors, Salesforce.org, to the producer, Ben Lonsborough, and to you for listening.